Are we recording? Yes, we are. Fantastic. Let's go. Hi, everyone. I'm Louisa. I'm an autistic academic at the University of Reading, and I'm your podcast host for season three of Psychological. As you might already know, if you've listened to the previous two seasons with Sue, Psychological is a podcast that started during lockdown, and it aims to make an evidence-based contribution to conversations about child and adolescent, well-being, development and learning, and neurodiversity. Today's Psychological is with Karen McLennan, who I have the pleasure of sharing an office with at Reading. She's a postdoctoral researcher at Reading, having recently finished her PhD, and she's on the phone with me today to talk about one of her recent papers, in our own words, the complex sensory experiences of autistic adults. So, hello, Karen. How are you doing today? Great. Thanks for having me on the podcast. That's good. That's good. So, we'll start off... uh, first thing I'd like you to tell me is what did you discover in the piece of research that we're talking about today? Yeah so um, in our in our research um, uh, we found that um, so firstly the the types of um, kind of sensory input that are linked with um, autistic adult sensory reactivity differences Um, so kind of being hyper reactive um, to the sensory environment so um, like an intense response to sensory input or being hyperreactive, so being unresponsive or like not responding to sensory input mm-hmm. or things that um, people might seek out. So they want to kind of continue the engage in um, either for an enjoyable reason or because they can't quite disconnect from it. Um, so then the other thing we found out um, was um, that um, autistic adults more commonly experience overlapping sensory hyperreactivity and sensory seeking, mm-hmm. um, which is an interesting finding because sensory seekings uh, commonly thought to be interlinked with sensory hyperreactivity, mm-hmm. and um, we also found out a bit more about um, the fact that sensory experiences are actually really complex. Um, and we developed a theoretical model of sensory experiences, which highlights that there are these moderating factors that can increase or reduce short-term outcomes and long-term outcomes of sensory reactivity differences, um, such as feeling overwhelmed or all the development of mental health conditions. Wow, that was a lot in that paper. (laughs) (laughs) Lots of good findings. So um, before we move on to the next bit, maybe just clarify for people that aren't familiar with some of the terminology. Hypo Mm -hmm. is kind of under reactivity. Is that right? Yeah. And hypo is like more reactive to something. So, okay. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Brilliant. Thank you. Um, So next question. What motivated you to conduct the study that you did? Yeah, so there's a lot about kind of sensory reactivity differences in, in children. Mm-hmm. Um, and we, that's kind of very commonly researched, but actually it's very under-researched in adults. And it was kind of seen as a child thing, um, yeah. not an adult thing. Um, so although there was kind of some good good qualitative research, um, there's actually not a, a study that had looked at the, the, those kind of types of sensory input that's associated with um, the sensory differences mm-hmm. um, across domains, such as mm-hmm. vision, hearing, touch, and things like that. Okay. Um, and especially um, sensory seeking is very largely neglected in literature mm-hmm. um, and in research, and especially in autistic adults. And there were some studies that kind of said, oh, it doesn't exist in adulthood, um, whereas some of the studies did show that, but it's just not yeah. really being kind of considered. Yeah, um, Exactly. And also kind of combining looking at those different types of sensory input um, associated with those differences, but also kind of 
incorporating that alongside um actual lived experiences of of yeah. those um different differences as well so yeah which sounds fantastic brilliant and you developed your study with input from autistic people as well didn't you I saw that when I had a flick through the paper yes yeah we did and we had um the wonderful Sarah Brian on on the team as well who's an autistic um researcher so yeah it was lucky. we were lucky to have her involved too yeah that's brilliant um so the next bit what did you how did you actually do your study what did you do yeah so um we did a um it was an online um mixed method study so um this kind of in, it was a yeah just an online survey um that we sent out and that included um multiple choice questions as well mm-hmm. as um kind of more open questions so people could write uh, more freely about their their sensory experiences mm-hmm. um so that kind of a range of different people could take part and kind of contribute in the way that they felt comfortable mm-hmm. um and yeah, we had uh, 49 autistic adults um, took part and um, shared some of their experiences with us mm-hmm. and kind of different levels of depth. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, as you mentioned, the, I think the important part is that we co-produced um, the study with autistic people. So as well as having Sarah um, mm-hmm. on board, um, we also got um, feedback at different stages of the research process throughout to make sure that um kind of you know the study was accessible mm-hmm. um but also we had a feedback group at the end with autistic adults um so that they could help shape um the results and also the interpretations of the study to make sure that it kind of represented and you know uh re- reflected their lived experiences as well yeah that makes sense yeah i guess so if you had um just a, a, a usual group of autistic researchers that were interpreting the results it would be very different to people that do have that lived experience so that was yeah definitely an important step to include that sounds really good um yeah. I was going to say something else then but it's completely left my brain I'm sure it'll come back in a minute but uh <laughs> yeah so um how did you do your analysis then so you've sort of gone through your questions how did you analyze the data Lots yeah so there yeah there was there was lots of different ways we approached this so we did kind mm. of some kind of basic quantitative analysis um just to kind of get uh frequencies of um of different things so one of them being like how many people identified as being sensory hyperreactive hyperactive mm. and seeking um as well as um kind of identified having those differences within the different modalities so different types of sensory inputs such as music or touch and things like that Mm-hmm. um and we also then did a content analysis which is where you um kind of make categories it's almost like counts of how many people um said that they experienced these um different sensory input um mm-hmm. in in those different ways so associated with the different uh the sensory differences mm-hmm. um and then kind of a main bulk of the the uh analysis was doing um a thematic analysis um and that's um that was kind of behind the development of of our we came up with like a theoretical model as i mentioned um and um a a thematic analysis is where you uh look at uh uh, we look at what the participants wrote about their sensory experiences in the open-ended questions and we develop these themes and sub themes um that reflect uh patterns of meaning in the data yes from what they said you extract themes from what they've said basically yeah absolutely and then those themes um based on the kind of feedback group as well and when we presented those themes to um the the autistic adults in that group they helped us shape this this model um that we came up with yeah yeah lots of different approaches yeah yeah there were lots of different things involved um with your kind of content analysis as well was there a lot of variation in the sort of different types of sensory experiences that people came up with or did you find kind of a 
Yeah, absolutely. I think that was the that was the the complex part <laughs> that yeah, uh, we kind of fed in was that very individualistic. Um, mm-hmm. There were some things obviously that were, were very common across mm-hmm. different people. Um, so uh, I guess very aversive things like. Um, uh, loud sounds, lots of background sounds, yeah. um, unex- light, unexpected touch, things like that came, yeah. you know, very, very common. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there was, I guess, in d- different domains, like um, when it came to uh, taste and, and, and um, uh, yeah, uh, things like that, it, it was a lot more individual and smell mm-hmm. as well was a bit more individual where people, it was kind of aligned with people's own preferences as well. And that seemed yeah. to kind of play a part too. Um, so, yeah, I felt like that, it really highlighted some commonalities but also a lot of you know that kind of highlighted the need to actually ask individuals themselves how they experience their environment and it's not a one-size-fits-all kind of approach not at all that's yeah there's so many differences between individual autistic people Mm. but yeah it's useful to kind of get that richer data so you can really find that out a lot of things are sort of just questionnaires aren't they and if it's kind of described questions it's harder to get that sort of information so it's a it's a good way of collecting data that sounds good yeah (laughs) very interesting um yeah so from what you've told us so far what do you think we could learn from the study that you've done or yeah yeah so I would say I mean, firstly, I think it was really important to be able to communicate in research um, mm-hmm. the autistic um, autistic sensory experiences from their perspective, um, because obviously anecdotally, it's all, you know, it, it's commonly talked about, but actually to mm-hmm. kind of get it in, in a research paper, I think is really important. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's, you know, especially with the kinds of sensory input um, and, and um, the environments and, and all of that. Um, but I think it's... Um, in general, I think it's really important for everyone to understand more about um, the sensory experiences of autistic individuals um, so that um, they're better understood um, mm-hmm. more widely and that also autistic individuals can get the relevant supports um, and that their mental health and physical health can be protected. Um, so I think that's why it's important um, for a lot of people to kind of uh, see these things and like learn about them. Yeah, especially if there are kind of commonalities in things that are more likely to affect autistic people that you identified in that content analysis if, if there is more awareness of the things that affect people then maybe people can cut so there are kind of things already in supermarkets where they have like autism friendly hours where the lights are yeah. and stuff I guess that's mainly geared at research or has come out of research with children are, with, are there kind yeah. of different things that perhaps could come out of research with adults where yeah absolutely yeah I agree especially because I, I agree I think a lot of it is geared at, at children and actually like knowing more of that about you know actually just firstly highlighting that these these things do persist into adulthood and the adults are also finding their environment challenging yeah. um and you know kind of understanding more about that I think is you know brings a lot of awareness that um, is really really important yeah yeah very important Sounds good. Um, what was I going to ask next? Oh, mm-hmm. I think we do have time for this one, which is good. So if you were to kind of continue from this project, what would you do next? Or if you did it again, would you do something differently? Yeah, um, I think, I mean, I'm still kind of continuing down uh, looking mm-hmm. at sensory reactivity. Yeah, and I think, um, so I've been uh, in a related study I've been assisting on um, called the, the Sensory Street. Uh, study um, which is headed by Kathy Manning mm-hmm. um, and that's examining more about it, environments that are disabling for autistic people um, with sensory reactivity differences mm-hmm. um, so you know which kind of 
takes it less on the onus of the, the person's own own needs but also looks at the environmental challenges right. and I think that so far we've been learning a lot more about kind of the social and environmental aspects that are also associated with sensory um, experiences mm-hmm. um, and I think there's some kind of really exciting research directions that can be developed from that as well um, yeah. so yeah it's nice to kind of bring that together with the other the other research that I've just been talking about as well yeah. and take that yeah, forward. I think- this one that you did was kind of the the end of your PhD, wasn't it? After you'd done more research throughout your PhD about it. And Teresa as well, your old PhD supervisor, came on and spoke yep. to you about one of your previous papers in um sort of I think it was sort of February time on this same podcast. So Yeah, 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 exactly. Because most of it, most of my PhD was on um looking at links between sensory and mental health. So I think that's kind of where where my my background is. Um and yeah, so doing this kind of this paper towards the end of um my PhD was nice to kind of look at oh, the wider impact of sensory differences and although obviously that mental health came through as kind of being really important it was nice to see like or learn more about other factors that are also really important and to highlight that it again it's more complex it's not just sensory causes anxiety or mm. or you know it's it's not the the relationship's not that simple so um yeah lots of lots of important think research directions to take forward yeah and it's only it's, it's not that long ago is it that kind of sensory differences were even added to diagnostic mm. criteria either and like more recently there's yeah. a lot of research into sensory processing in autism I think it's it's one of the research priorities that was identified yeah absolutely as well so yeah yeah research yeah, yeah. It's, it's interesting to listen to and to learn about your research a bit more as well because we have I don't think we've had as much of an in-depth conversation about your research just sitting next to each other in the office but yeah <laughs> it's interesting it's really good yeah. <laughs> um, is there anything else you'd like to add before I ask my final question? Um, yeah, I don't know actually. I feel like we covered um, quite a lot of the paper, for, even though it's quite a complex paper. It I is. Feel like there's yeah. The um, those are kind of the the key the key points. But I think that I mean I would I would just like to say that obviously my collaborating on this with um Teresa and Sarah was they were you know we made a really good um research team and getting all the all the feedback um from the autistic adults um throughout this research process I think made this paper and this study as strong as I I may be biased but I feel like it's it's I think it's a good piece of work and I'm very proud of it and I think that um and we we all are and um yeah I think it, it it was fully shaped by the community so I think it's just to me really solidifies how important it is to co-produce research with the autistic community mm-hmm. um, because it does it makes you learn a lot more and also it makes your research really reflect what people are experiencing in their real lives and I think that that is important um, yeah. rather than producing research that maybe doesn't quite live up to how people are actually experiencing it. So. Absolutely it really helps people kind of put their own like autistic people to put their own priorities for research into research that's being conducted as well if they're allowed to have an input into what's going mm. on and then kind of shape how the research is formed it's actually going to be useful for them because it's you know something that they're interested in being researched so yeah participatory <laughs> research practices are awesome I'm also yeah. very excited about those at the end of the podcast conversation but um <laughs> A final little question. Um, so yeah. you're an early career researcher anyway, so quite yeah. early on in the stage of your research, but there's probably some other students listening, people that are maybe a bit earlier on in their careers. Is mm. there anything that you'd maybe like to say to them 
or advice? Yeah, I guess. Um, I mean, I was very lucky with my uh, PhD supervisor, Teresa, who um, is, is she's good with the work life balance. And I feel like to me, that's really important. And I, yeah. I, I guess the most important thing is to, for if you're a student or an early career researcher or at any stage in academia is to always put your health and well-being first and to not feel guilty about it um because it's really hard to succeed and thrive if you're burning yourself out all the time um so yeah I feel like I've, I've learned from <laughs> now working um with my amazing mentors that it's actually okay to say no sometimes and to not take everything on um I think that's especially important with working at home a lot more as we have all done over the last couple of years that that distinction between work and home has been a bit blurred mm. um and that yeah it's really it's good to nurture your your work-life balance and to preserve your evenings and weekends and not feel guilty about it that is I very think. good advice also advice that <laughs> I should probably take myself but uh <laughs> just just saying Louisa <laughs> yeah yeah it's probably advice I should also take myself I mean that's advice that I guess could apply to anybody at the moment because so many people have been working from home too. yeah I just know it's so much harder to have your end of day because usually you're like well I've got to get home I get mm. you know get in the car get on the train or however you're doing it and you go home Mm. whereas like you're sat at your laptop or you have to just close your laptop and sometimes it can be really hard to do that and like when it's still maybe in the room with you yeah. or like in the I next can't room even close so. mine it's just a computer that's on that's there all the time. <laughs> well <living>. exactly <laughs> if you've got that then it's just staring you yeah so I think that um as I said I was very I've been very lucky with, with my mentors that it's been kind of enforced on me <laughs> to not yeah. work um but yeah I, I would always I would just say it just to not have the guilt about doing it either is is important. Very important advice. Thank you very much. <laughs> All right, I used to follow it, Liza. Well. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Definitely. Well, thank you so much for your time today, Karen. That was really nice. Thank, thank you for being my first recording as well. <laughs> That's oh. lovely. <laughs> You're welcome. Thanks. I've had a great time. <laughs> yeah, I did. It was great. But yeah, for anyone listening as well, thank you for joining us. Um, you can find more about Karen and her work by following the links in the podcast podcast sorry description on Buzzsprout or in your podcast app. And join us again at the same time next week for another episode of Psychological. Bye. <laughs>